Welcome to the Lost Roman Heroes podcast. My name is Matthew. And my name is Matteo. And together, we are diving deep into the history of Rome from its founding to its death, uncovering Rome's greatest heroes along the way and ranking them. Matteo. Yeah. Before we get rolling, we have some unfinished business from episode 13. You will recall, at the end of the last episode on Tiberius Gracchus, Gracchus scored a score of 71%, which is a pretty solid sixth place, but you and I couldn't agree. No, could not. I thought that he belonged in the Hall of Heroes, and you thought that maybe not. And I thought that maybe not. Right. And so you had this great idea. Well, it was an okay idea. No, I thought it was a good idea. We put up a poll on Twitter, as per your suggestion. I was a little worried that we weren't going to get anybody participating but we did we got a couple participants we got a couple of participants and i think you're going to be happy with the outcome to those couple participants we appreciate it because uh taking the time to go and do a two-second vote uh really helps us i could not agree with you more i was super excited to see it. really appreciate it and your boy is in the hall of heroes your boy's in the hall of heroes gracchus got voted in with a 67% vote calling him a hero and a man of the people, and 33% not hero, demagogue. And I think it's important to say that neither you nor I participated in this poll. Which is awesome. So, I think we can give him a little clap. Gragas, welcome to the Hall of Heroes. You were voted in by the people, and you were a man of the people, so it makes sense. Solid guy. Solid guy. So, let's move on. To episode 14, where we are going to be focusing, Matteo, on a man named Gaius Marius. We were going to cover Sulla in this episode, but I got my chronology a little off, Matteo. So today we're doing Gaius Marius, and next week we'll be covering Sulla, and their two stories are inextricably linked. You can't understand Marius without understanding Sulla. Two destinies that are heavily intertwined. So very much intertwined. And you had said last time that this rang a bell. Well, the bells are going to start ringing big time in this episode. So we are entering into a very complex period in Roman history. I wasn't certain if we were going to be able to do Marius in one episode. I think we will. But... Marius and Sulla go together like chocolate and peanut butter. That's a nasty combo. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's gross. I, lo- I love Reese's Pieces. And anyways, um, this is going to be a shocking period in Roman history. The Republic, Matteo, is entering the end game. So yep. keep, keep your eyes peeled for Home Sith stretch. Lords. And the question is, will we find any Jedi Knights or are we going all Sith now? Let's jump in and find out. So as we do every episode, let's start out very quickly orienting ourselves on the map and in time. For the very first time, Mateo, the very first time in our podcast, the curtains open not in the city of Rome, but instead we're in a city called, or a town called, Arpinum, which is the modern town of Arpino in Lazio, which is in central Italy, and that is the birthplace of Gaius Marius as well as a guy named Cicero, who we may come across in later episodes. 
The year is 157 BC, Mateo. That's six years after last episode's hero, Tiberius Gracchus, was born. So these two were very much contemporaries. Right. And now, let's give a few highlights from around the world. Well, in 138 BC, China's Han Dynasty was growing stronger, uh, thanks to Emperor Wu making big changes, and he pushed his armies further and further out. At the same time, the Italian Kingdom, which is now Turkey, was about to leave was about to leave its land to Rome, changing the map there. And across the ocean, the in the Americas, advanced societies like the Zapotecas, or the Zapotecs, <laughs> present Zapoteca. day, yeah, I don't know, how, yeah, uh, maybe right. in present day Mexico, were building cities and monuments. In Africa, powerful kingdoms like the Kush continued their long history of trade and cultural exchange with their neighbors. Okay, cool. That's a good setup. And so now let's catch up on the history of Rome. In last episode, Mateo, episode 13, we ended with the death of Tiberius Gracchus. Right, the unlawful killing. The unlawful, extra, extra legal killing of Tiberius Gracchus and the spirit of 146 was taking Rome down a new path. The Gracchus brothers were rabble-rousing populists and they used their power of the crowd or control of the crowd sometimes mob violence in order to achieve their political aims. And that was something completely new in the history of Rome. Yeah. And we're going to see much more of it, including in this episode. Maybe they were using people power to advance their own interests. That was sort of my point last episode. Maybe they were trying to do good, trying to narrow the gap between the rich and the poor, and they were using people power in order to accomplish it. And I think that was your point in the last episode. Right. But, Mateo, do the ends justify the means? You know, I think it really depends. It depends, like, um, to what extreme you're taking it to, you know? Because uh, just like in our society nowadays, hmm. I mean, a lot of, like, the laws or laws in place are kind of built to oppress, like, against the people, you know? Yes. Like, there's certain, like, um, rules in place so that, like, there's change doesn't really so the rich people stay rich you know stuff like that yes so i think in some cases um bending of the rules certainly needs to happen in order to start change mm-hmm. because just because a rule is a rule doesn't necessarily mean it's right you know what i mean i do know so, what you mean so I'm, it makes me think of the american revolution that was completely yeah. upsetting the old order but arguably for positive advancement right So the question is, in what we're about to see, as we watch this story of the death throes of the Republic play out, did the end justify the means? Mm. I guess we'll find out. I guess we will. And we will see now cracks. The little cracks that we saw opening over the last couple episodes become very, very big cracks. Unfillable cracks. Or unfillable. Closable cracks. That are going to the root of this Roman system that had worked so well for 400 years, but doesn't have much life left to it. So let's get into Marius. Gaius Marius, as I said, was born, Matteo, in Arpinum, not in Rome, in 157 BC. Arpinum was a town that had been conquered by the Romans in the 4th century. So this is 250 years or so into the Roman rule of Arpinum. They had partial Roman citizenship. Partial because they had no voting rights for the first 200 some odd years 
of their membership of in, in, in the Roman nation, finally, 30 years before Marius was born, they were given suffrage. They were given the ability to vote. They became full Roman citizens. That's a big issue in Rome because we've seen Rome in control of the Italian peninsula now for a long, long time. But many of the people that fought Matteo and Roman armies, fought under the Roman banner, called themselves Roman, weren't truly Roman because they couldn't vote. Right. And we're going to come back to this theme later in this episode. Marius called himself the son of a simple farmer. He called himself a simple man throughout his career, and that helped him connect with the people. But the truth is, he didn't come from a simple little farming family. His father was a wealthy landover in Arpinum, and they were very connected to big families in the city of Rome, and that helped this young man to rise quickly through the ranks. His dad was probably an equestrian, Matteo. Right, which was the class right below uh, the senators, right? That is precisely the case, right below senatorial class. Despite the fact that he grew up in a well-to-do family and his father was an equestrian, this fact that he was equestrian and not senatorial class was something that would hound him his entire life. He had a chip on his shoulder, and senators would always look down their noses on Marius as a novus homo, a new man. Wasn't one of the old guard. Poor guy, no? Yeah. So... Let's take a look at Marius. You can go to our website, listeners, www.lostromanheroes.com. Go to the images gallery, and you will see the face of Marius. What do you see when you look at that face, Mateo? Determination, I guess. Can we, can, can you, do you have a sense from looking at that face? Are we looking at good or bad? Are we looking at Sith or Jedi? I mean, hmm. I don't know. He seems like definitely, like you said, he has a chip on his shoulder, like he's driven and ambitious. Yes. I don't know if that makes him good or bad, though. I think we're going to have to tell his tale, and along the way, we'll see whether or not we're looking at good guy or bad guy here. Right. He's a complex character. He was a contemporary, Mateo, of all the leading players from the last episode. Gracchus, Emilianus. He was right there when all of those events of the last episode were playing out. But as we'll see, he didn't play a big role in Gracchus's reign of people power. But he would use the people to his own ends, as we'll see in this episode. On Heroes, you'll also see a great timeline we borrowed from Wikipedia on the life of Gracchus. If somebody wants to go and take a peek and, and understand how these events play out, um, that's a helpful little tool. So Marius's early days, the curtain rose on Marius in 134 BC, Matteo. He was already 23 years old. And when the curtain rises, it's going to find him in a very, very familiar place against a very familiar foe. You remember the Celtiberians in Spain? Yeah, we talk about them almost every episode. Almost every episode. They're still there. They still want their independence. Maybe they're just hanging out, eating some tapas. Hmm, that's not making any political statements. It's <laughs> not political. That's just, that's one of the local cuisines of the area. So we're still in what we called, what was known as the Newman Time War. And Marius Mateo served directly underneath Scipio Emilianus, one of your favorite people. 
Well, I'm not actually not too uh, hell bent with that guy, yeah. you know. <laughs> but wow, I mean, they all live so so near each other, you know. Like before, the first two guys that we we're analyzing were all a couple hundred years apart, yes. almost it seemed. But these guys are yeah. History is kind of bunching up, yeah. Right, you have all these little overlapping stories. I don't think the podcast will always be like that, but right now we're clearly in a period where it's coming fast and furious. Yeah. Marius served underneath Scipio Emilianus as an officer in Emilianus's personal legion. And according to Plutarch, the Roman historian, legend says, somebody asked Emilianus one night when they were sitting down for dinner having a glass of wine, hey, Emilianus, who do you think could possibly succeed you, the great Emilianus, as a leader Crunch, crunch. You're like... <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Mateo's crunching on homemade uh, bread croutons that I made, which are quite good with They're homemade amazing. bread. Oh, my God. You They're very these. good. They're very, I should sell them. Yeah. All right. Well, can you stop crunching on the podcast? Oh, yeah. Or, or just... Huh? Yeah, you should sell on the podcast. Oh, no. I'm not saying selling the podcast. I'm just saying the sound of the crunching is probably dominating the podcast, but they are very Sorry. good. Sorry. So Emilianus turned around after being asked this question and he tapped Marius on the shoulder and said something like, maybe this young dude could succeed me. Okay, Emilianus wasn't all that. I don't know why they're acting like he was a freaking... I don't know, because you know that the the Romans looked at Emilianus as one of the last greats from kind of the High Republic period, one of the last great generals. They bundled him together with Scipio Africanus. I don't get it either. But they thought about him that way. Yeah, well, they're all idiots. <laughs> so after this time, Marius was elected a military tribune. He participated in more battles and continued to distinguish himself along the way. Military tribune, if I'm not mistaken, is the third highest rank in the army, right? Mateo, I'm not certain. You, isn't it after the military tribune, there's legates or whatever they're called? Like, yeah, the legates who are kind of like the they're, they're field generals, basically, right? I thought, oh, I thought it was legates then in general. Mm, you know what? On our next episode, let's clarify that. Let's do a little research, and then yeah, the next we, time we around, we can't know nothing about the uh, military structure because no. we're going to seem like frauds. We can't not know nothing. Is that what you just said? <laughs> we're going to seem like frauds. <laughs> no, yeah, we would seem like frauds. All right, so we we're gonna that? we're gonna do no because I'm I'm talking right now. In 119 BC, at the age of 36, he was elected as one of the tribunes of the plebs, Mateo. And so now he's getting political power in addition to military power, and he returned in office soon thereafter in 120 BC. So he was elected two times as a tribune of the plebs. So he officially and, became a senator. And as we saw, I don't know if that's when he officially becomes a senator, but as we saw in the last episode, the council of the plebs, the tribunes of the plebs, were becoming more and more powerful and were able to muscle the Senate around because they had access to people power. Like the mafia. A lot like the mafia. And funny you just said that. Because, Mateo, remember in ancient Rome, there was a system of patronage that sort of held society together. Right. You had patrons and you had clients. Mm-hmm. Big, wealthy patrons, senatorial families, took care of the people below them on the social ladder. And they were sort of the government safety net that we had today. You know, there's no right. social security or government health care. But you would go to your patron when you had a problem. La gente. And the, la, and the pa- patron would look out for you. But when the patron needed something, they would call in favors. A lot like that opening scene in The Godfather. Done. Yep. So Marius had a patron, Mateo, a family called the Metelli. That was the family name. And in 120 BC, when he was a tribune of the plebs, 
Marius helped pass a new voting law called the Lex Maria mm. that alienated his patron. You don't want to mess with the patron, right? Right. Listen to this voting law because it's, it's pretty unbelievable. So when people would go to vote, and we're talking about land-owning uh, male Romans with a certain degree of power, they would walk down a passage, a corridor, and as they were to the ballot box, and as they're walking down this passageway, the wealthy senators would be standing alongside, harassing them, haranguing them, bugging them, and trying to get them to vote the way the senators wanted them to vote. And so Marius's new law, Matteo, what did it do? What was the big innovation? It took out the senators? It narrowed the tunnel. Ooh. So there was no room for anybody else to stand on the side. The voter could walk straight down, basically with the shoulders brushing on both sides, and nobody could mess with them. And the wealthy senators didn't like that, especially not the Metelli, who were the patrons of Marius. Mm. So Marius now hit some little headwinds in his career. He tried running for higher offices, then he lost, and then he just barely won the election for Praetor, he was accused of voting fraud, and then he was cleared. So he started this, this pushing back against his patron caused him some trouble. But then he got a break, Mateo. He was awarded the governorship of a territory in Spain where he stayed for two years. And when Marius returned, guess what? What? He was much, much, much wealthier than he was than he left for the posting in Spain. Crazy how things happen. Isn't that funny? He apparently did a decent job when he was in Spain, and when he came back, he didn't get a triumph, but he got something even more special. Wait, you would get a triumph for being a governor? Well, he was a governor, but he also led troops and fought some battles, but he, he did a good job, but nothing extraordinary. But he came right. back, and something really good happened to him. What? He got married. Oh, yeah. Aww. He married a lovely young girl named Julia Mateo. Oh, that's, a, that's not a common name at all. Julia was from a very special family. She just happened to be the aunt, or would become the aunt in the future, of a little dude whose name, unborn, whose name would be... Gaius? Julius Caesar. So... Oh, that guy. Oh, that yeah, that guy. That little dude. So Marius married Julia, and Julia wound up being the aunt of Julius Caesar. Presti prestigious family. Prestigious. She does. He doesn't show up in this episode, but there it is. It's out there. Caesar's out there somewhere, percolating. We're finally there. So, wow. we have this Marius guy, Matteo. He is a rising star. And where do rising stars go to burnish their credentials to show that they're tough? War. Yes. And war where? Spain. Africa. Oh. Still. Mm -hmm. We go to Africa, because now it is time for the Juggerthine War. Do you remember, Matteo? And I'm going to put a coin in your hand, because this may, this may, here, take this coin. I'm putting a coin in Matteo's hand, a bronze coin. You remember Masinisa? Mansa Musa. Uh -huh. forget. Uh -huh. Guy's been around for like freaking eight episodes. Well, yeah, he's been, he's dead for a little while now. And in fact, his son... Just died, Mateo, in the episode. Just died. It is 118 BC, and his son, Mikipsa, son of Masinisa, is dead. And his succession was really messy because he had two sons by blood, and then he had an adopted son who was also happened to be his nephew, and that guy's name was Jagurtha. So Jagurtha is also a grandson of Masinisa. 
And Jugurtha had a bit of the old Numidian fire in right. him. Uh, this is a guy, Matteo, that had also served under Scipio Emilianus during the Third Punic War. Really? Jugurtha. Yeah. Wow. He was called the Desert Lion because he was handsome, athletic, charismatic. He was a great leader of men, this Jugurtha. Yeah, this guy is the best, then. Yeah. He's, he's a lot like old Masinissa was. And when his adopted father died, his uncle died, he attacked and defeated his two cousins slash brothers, killed one of them, defeated the other, and then he said, let's have some fun. He started killing Italians in his realm for fun. Why would he do that? It, he wanted complete control, and I think he didn't like the fact that Rome didn't support his bid for power. So he started killing Italians in his domain. Rome did not love that. No, I wouldn't think so. And they sent an army to Africa to make Jugurtha pay. And guess what he did? He paid? He paid. He bribed his way out of trouble. Oh. Exactly right. <laughs> Yeah, that was a good guess. He bribed his way, bribed the Romans that were sent to to wipe him out. Was he rich? Uh, he was. Yeah, he was. He was very wealthy. It was northern Africa. That whole area of Carthage was an extremely bountiful uh, land. I feel like I never really understand the way economics was back then. Because I swear it's always like a king is super rich, like crazy amounts of like treasure in the treasury, and then the next day they're like bankrupt. I don't get it. Back then, land was wealth. And if you had arable land, land that was productive from an agricultural sense, you were wealthy. And these guys were producing a tremendous amount of grain. Uh, and we would see that North Africa provided Rome's grain for, for centuries. And so I think that's where the wealth came from. Plus you had, they were probably inherited some of the old Carthaginian uh, kind of mer uh, mercantile genes. And trade was probably also important to them in North Africa. So Rome saw that they, the first guys they sent to do the job got bribed off and spot off. So they sent a guy named Quintus Caecilius Metellus. He was elected consul and sent to Africa. Metellus was of the Metelli. So he was that patron family that was a patron to Marius. And Metellus, in a sign that, you know, n no harm, no foul, I still like you, Marius, brought Marius with him as his number two to Africa. Right. Metellus was an old school Roman, Matteo. He could not be bribed. So when he got to Carthage, he started uh, you know, training the troops and they started pushing back against Jugurtha. But Metellus's style was a lot like old Fabius. Remember Fabius? Oh, yeah. Hard to forget that guy. It's hard to, <laughs> it's true, it's hard to forget. So he was very methodical, the manner in which he went about this battle against Jugurtha. Um, there was uh, one notable battle up against the river Muthul. The Romans were there filling up their water bottles, and Jugurtha fell upon the Romans, who were disorganized because they were sipping water and, and, and sort of relaxing by the river, and they drove the Romans into the desert, Matteo, where they were easy pickings. The Numidian cavalry, you remember the Numidian cavalry from our talk about Masinissa, they were best in the business. And they galloped after the scattered Romans and started picking them off one by one. The army was on the verge, Matteo, of complete annihilation. But Marius rallied. He organized some of the scattered men. He put together a column of 2,000 troops. They were able to carve through the Numidian attack, linked up with Metellus, get the high ground, and they eventually fought off the Numidians 
and won the battle. That really, that was like the first moment where Marius truly shined in a big format battle. And even more importantly, Matteo, the troops loved him because he was a man of the people. His dad was a farmer. He ate with the troops. He shared their chores. He was just like them. Honestly, hmm. it sounds like a lot like one of his little nephews, huh? Who's nephews? Sounds like one of his nephews. Ah, yes, indeed. Julius. Yeah, you're right. There was a common touch to him. Yeah, Marius was obviously super renowned for being like a martial like god. I mean, he did a lot of things for the army, uh, for the military system in Rome that we're going to probably see in the episode, right? We are going to see it, actually, very soon. So we're still in Carthage, though, and Marius started getting annoyed with Metellus's Fabian-type approach. Very methodical, very piecemeal. Marius wanted the big battle. He wanted to go aggressive. He wanted to crush. Right. Crush. Uh, Jugurtha. And Metellus kept telling him, relax, relax, relax. Finally, Marius made it clear, Matteo, that he wanted to be elected consul because he wanted to be the one in charge of the war. And Metellus said, that's a great idea, Marius. But first, my own son should be consul. He's next in line. Wait your turn. Marius had his friends and had his troops start writing letters to the Senate saying, this guy, Metellus, doesn't know what he's doing. Marius should be in charge. And we know that the Romans love action, right? Of course. The Romans didn't love the whole Fabian approach. They like big, bold, aggressive. Get the job done, come home. That is the case. So Marius is in camp talking trash about Metellus and finally said, you know what, Marius, you can go back to Rome and run for consul because you're not... This stuff isn't good for morale. So in 107 BC, at the age of 50, Matteo, Marius is already 50. He was elected consul for the first time. Right, so he hasn't done a whole lot in 50 years. Not a lot. Nope. Seems like he was slowly grinding. He's so well put. He's a grinder. It took him a long time to get here to his first shot. And here he is at the age of 50. Number one. Start keeping count, because this episode, Mateo, is going to blow you away. In our 13 episodes up until now, we've seen people get the consulship one time, two times, three times. Marius is going to set a new record. (laughs) So Marius wanted to go back to Africa, Mateo, because he wanted to be the one to defeat Jugurtha. And Metellus used his political influence to try to prevent that to get Marius assigned a different territory because Metellus wanted the glory of taking down Jugurtha and maybe more importantly, he didn't want Marius to have the glory. Right. But Marius had this gift with the people and he got the council of the plebs to override the Senate and he was sent back to Africa as consul to finish up the war. Metellus was recalled and when he got back to Rome, Matteo, he was given a triumph and he was given the agnomen Numidicus, even though he had not won the war in Numidia. It's just not fair. Those patricians, no? Yeah, that must have really pissed off Marius. It must have really bugged the hell out of him. So he's heading back to Africa, Monteo, but before he could win the victory, he needed an army. But Rome was having big structural problems now, and we've alluded to them in prior episodes. We talked about it during the Gracchus episode. But Matteo, they were running out of troops to fight their wars. Because recall that in order to serve in the Roman army, 
you needed to hold land. Be a citizen, basically. You needed to be a citizen, and you needed to be a land-owning citizen. So Marius asked the Senate for permission to do things a little bit differently, and the Senate said yes. So since the beginning of Rome, Rome conscripted men to serve in the army, but to serve you needed land. We saw that Gracchus tried to address this by coming up with a land commission and distributing land to veterans so that they could participate, uh, they could meet the qualifications to serve in the army, but the rich were hoovering that land up. Gracchus tried to do something about it, but he couldn't really stop the tide. Right. And there was another problem in the Roman army, Matteo, which is What's that? the rich used to be the backbone of the army. Oh, and you know how rich people are fighting. They used to be the backbone. They used to be the entire cavalry. They used to be the entire officer corps. Uh, remember in Cannae, when in that horrible defeat, 30% of all senators were killed in the battle, remember? Uh, but now the rich didn't want to fight. They were just too comfy on their estates and too comfy in the bats. With their little monopolies and stuff. Yeah. So not enough soldiers on the one hand, not enough officers, and not enough cavalry. Not enough high-quality soldiers, yeah. Not shock, enough high-quality soldiers. troopers. So Marius did this radical reform. He started asking for volunteers, not conscripts. He waived the minimum land requirement. And he brought in men with no land. They were called the capite sensi. He brought in the poor, he brought in their forgotten vets and the unlanded and said, come join the army. The army is not an obligation, it's a career. And they're gonna take care of you. And I will take care of you at the end of the battle. Not the we, the Romans, me, me, Marius, me, the general, I, I will take care of you. Me, the general, I, the general. I, the general, will take care of you. So he has this new army of new men, just like him motivated, looking for plunder, grateful to be a part of it, and with that army he sailed for Africa. When he landed there, he expected a quick victory, but the Numidians under Jugurtha were worthy successors of Masinissa. They didn't give Marius the chance to strike a knockout blow. So, Marius sent his number two. Number two in command, a young caster named Lucius Cornelius Sula. Hmm, never heard of that guy either. Bells are ringing. Crazy. You know what? I always thought that Sula was older than Marius. Yeah. Uh, I did too. That's why I got the episode chronology off. But no, he was, he was younger, about 20 years younger. Oh, wow. And so he got Sula and said, Sula, I have a secret mission for you, my friend. Sula was commander of the cavalry. He had already distinguished himself in Africa as being a charismatic and able leader of men. Marius didn't love Sula, however, because Sula had a bit of a reputation as being a party animal. Also, very popular with the people. He was a charismatic guy and a successful leader of men in his own right. And you get the sense that from the beginning, there was a little bit of jealousy. So Sula went on the secret mission, Matteo, to speak with Jugurtha's father-in-law. His father-in-law's name was Bacchus of Mauritania. And uh, Jugurtha was fighting in Mauritania now because the Romans had been pushing him westward. And somehow, Sula was able to convince Bacchus to capture his own son-in-law and to hand him over to the Romans. 
Wow, he must have been pretty freaking convincing. That he most certainly was. But what do you think Sula could have said to Bacchus to get him to do this? Maybe convince him that um, Jugurtha was going to betray him or something like that? I'm not sure. Maybe. Or maybe they offered him some rich rewards. Or maybe both. At any rate, somehow Sula was able to bring this war to a conclusion with words. And I can just imagine something about that really irritated Marius. Right, because he was going for the glory to begin with. He was going for the big glory. So this is Sula's appearance in history, Mateo. We're going to talk about him a whole lot more in his own episode next week. But in the meantime, to our listeners... Okay, Mateo's crunching a lot by my side. I'm sorry. He's really... <laughs> he can't stop with the breadcrumbs. They're really good. They are. It's a patented recipe, and, uh, and I don't know, maybe there's a future in it. So that is Sula's face. You can see it, it at www... Yeah. You can see it at www.lostromanheroes.com. And Mateo, <laughs> could you make some effort, me, please, to make a little, little less noise? I'm sorry. I'll stop. <laughs> okay, please. At any rate, Sula, scary-looking guy. You, that was your impression of him. A little scary, certainly intense, and he looks like Voldemort, obviously because his nose. Yeah, is a little bit, yeah. So Marius and Sula Matteo returned to Rome with Jugurtha in chains. The Numidian king was marched in Marius's triumph. I'm going to repeat that: Marius's triumph. Sula had no triumph. Oh my God. Just finish doing it. <laughs> just go ahead. Just take take a couple more good crunches. And maybe that started their rivalry, you think? It, I absolutely do. Marius got all the credit because Marius had what the Romans called Imperium. The war was his war. And so anything that happened good in that war accrued to him. He was given the credit. Sula and his friends said that it should have been Sula's glory and the seeds of hatred, Matteo, had been planted. That's not the kind of guy I wanted to have as my enemy. No, most definitely not. And Marius might live to regret it. Matteo, we're moving on to another war. But would you say it has been a long time since the Romans were really challenged as being the masters of Italy, right? Yeah. Last time was... I was going to say the same thing. Yeah, I think the last time was Hannibal. That was the last time their grip on the peninsula was really threatened. Well, that is about to change. In 109 BC, a Germanic tribe from somewhere around Sweden that had been wandering around the west through Gaul, up and down, uh, crashed into a Roman army in Gaul and wound up defeating them somewhere in the south near uh, uh, Marseille. And if you Massilia. go to uh, Massilia, thank you very much. That was the word I was looking for. That's the, the old Greek colony. And if you go to our website, you'll see a map borrowed uh, from Wikipedia, which shows kind of the migratory pattern of the of this tribe uh, of the Chimbrians, and that was a huge embarrassment. The Romans had no idea who these guys were. They hadn't fought against a barbarian tribe like that in a long time, and all of a sudden they got crushed in an unexpected battle. And the other Celtic Gaul tri- Gaulish tribes in the area started waking up, saying, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa!" hey, maybe the Romans aren't so uh, invincible as we thought. And in the next few years, the Romans found themselves, Matteo, challenged and defeated in turn by the Chimbrians, the Teutons, the Tigurini, and other Celtic tribes. And in fact, this Tigurini tribe uh, 
defeated a Roman army so brutally that the surviving, the one surviving Roman officer had to take the surviving uh, soldiers in the army and, and put them underneath the yoke. What's that mean? Under the yoke is when the enemy holds their weapons up and you need to crawl down and basically uh, crawl underneath the weapons of your enemy to indicate that you have completely submitted to them. Wait, he ch- they forced him to do that? Yes. Oh. It was the only way that he could survive and could get the, the surviving Roman soldiers out. That's embarrassing. Massive humiliation, because this is not the Rome of 500 years ago. This is, this is imperial Rome that controls the Mediterranean from, you know, from Syria to Iberia. To, to, to Iberia. And so the Roman Senate all of a sudden woke up. This is at the same time, Matteo, in which Marius is down south in Africa, and they appointed two new consuls. A guy named Kepio, was a patrician general, a pat- comes from a patrician family, and a guy named Malius, who was a pleb. And he sent these two, they sent these two new consuls north to put down the barbarian threat. The two consuls met the Chimbri, the tribe of the Chimbri and the Teutons in Gaul, in modern France at the town that is now called Orange, then it was called Arazio, on the banks of the River Rhone on October 6th, 105 BC. Now, Malleus, remember, he's the pleb, he's a new man like Marius, tried to coordinate with Kepio, but Kepio refused to come to the aid of Malleus. Why? Because he was a novus homo? Because he was a pleb. I'm a patrician, and I'm not going to come to your aid. The problem is that Kepio's army encountered the enemy first and was routed, and as they were fleeing, they crashed into the army of Malleus on the banks of the River Rome, where the two armies were pinned down, and they were destroyed, Matteo. And when I say destroyed, I mean 80,000 Roman soldiers killed, 40,000 auxiliary troops killed, 120,000 dead on the field for the Rome and their allies. It was much worse than Cannae. And in numerical terms, Matteo, the worst defeat in Roman history. Wow. And I had never heard of it. I had no idea. Me neither. I had no idea. Isn't that crazy? It's wild. It is wild. So remember that. Orazio, Orazio was the name of the town. Never heard that's that battle where, before. That's where the Romans suffered their worst defeat in history. And the Senate fell into an all-out panic. Who was left? What general had battle experience and had actually won battles? They could think of only one man, and that was Marius. They elected Marius consul again, even though he was still in Africa, Matteo. This was his second consulship in three years. And this general, the only Roman general that seemed to be winning battles, was given a blank check. Marius, do whatever you got to do in order to salvage our honor and to protect Rome. So Marius hopped on a boat with his number two, Sulla. This is now post-triumph in Rome. And they made their headquarters in a town called today, Aix-en-Provence, which was, uh, uh, I forget, in Latin. We'll see so it in a second. So Marius should have, I mean, he obviously knew that Sulla was gifted, right? Oh, he knew. And, and I think maybe they had some, there was some friction, but Marius still saw him as his loyal number two. I don't think whatever is that will happen, we'll see happen in, uh, in a little while, had not yet exploded into the open. 
So Marius did, he pulled the same trick. He started rebuilding the army. He brought in professional troops. He put 70 pound, ah, Mateo, this is a cool, this is an interesting thing. Up until this point, when the Roman army was on the move, generally speaking, they had kind of, uh, let's call them servants, carrying the stuff. And Marius said, when you have a baggage train with servants carrying stuff, it greatly reduces your mobility. And so he told the troops, no more servants, guys. Here are some nifty backpacks. You're going to put all your stuff in the backpack, and you're responsible for carrying your own things. So for over a year, he trained his troops to march at high speed over long distances with their 70-pound packs on their backs. Which is interesting because now that's what most armies around the world are accustomed to doing, you know, to march around with, like, super heavy bags on them. And you get buff. Oh, yeah. You get buff. That cross country is probably crazy. Yeah, you get buff. And so if you're going into battle against uh, an army that is not trained like you're trained with 70-pound packs on your back, you can imagine that you you have much more uh, uh, resilience and resistance. And... This was so, Mateo, so revolutionary, such a break from the past, that the senators started calling Marius's army Marius's mules. Oh, yeah, because they each carried, like, saddlebags, basically. Yeah, because they were doing the work that before was given to the mules and probably the slaves and, and now the soldiers themselves. Well, that's a nice thing to call your army. You can imagine this completely feeds into this Marius's the the big chip that Marius's must have been. Okay, Mateo got more. Uh, oh my God, dude! <laughs> seriously, this is like the episode, the breadcrumb episode. It's your fault for making them so crunchy. You know? so, <laughs> I'm sorry. Marius did other things, Mateo, which were also revolutionary. So we've talked in the past about the old maniple system of the way the, uh, the Romans' army used to be organized in a battle. It was that checkerboard pattern, right? So that men from the, line, the second line and the third line could easily move up through the front lines to, to support men on the front lines. Right, they'd open up and then they'd step in. Yes. So the old army organization was all about dispersion. Disperse your forces so that people can move up and back easily. And Marius developed an approach that was all about concentration. He did away with the maniple system. Now you had a full-blown cohort system, very similar to what we'll be seeing for the centuries to come of Roman warfare, with three solid lines, more men in each cohort. Forget Roman warfare. You see this, like, you've been seeing this until, like, up until, I don't know, 100 years ago. That's very true. Less, like World War Two. I mean, that's when things started getting uh, more, like, uh, that's when kind of, like, big unit warfare kind of started disappearing after World War One. But, I mean, we, we saw this for, like, most of modern history. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right, and, and I think that Marius deserves... A, a lot of the credit for this completely uh, uh, reorganization of the Roman army. And when you think about it, Matteo, what guts this guy had. Because the old maniple system was massively successful for 500 years. It allowed Rome to basically conquer the Mediterranean. And now just like that, Marius throws it out the window because he decided that it simply wasn't working against these northern barbarians. This is the first time, Matteo, that Rome has come up against northern barbarians and they had 
a completely different style of warfare, and Marius adapted the Romans to deal with that. Um, and so, Matteo, think about Marius's army. There are no more rich kids in the army. It is a meritocracy. He's promoting people from within. He's developed an esprit de corps that wasn't there before. And these were guys that were from the dregs of society, could now rise to be centurions right. in the army. It was a radical reorganization. A, like a self-sustaining structure. And it was a structure and a body of men that were loyal to the general, not to the state, necessarily. Right, because they don't have their own self-interest, and so not all senators. That's very much the case. They're in it to get paid. Yep. And the general needs to make certain that they get paid. He made one last change, Matteo, before we get into the battle. You know the, the pilum, the Roman spear? Yep. So he added, he made a little technological change to the pilum. He added a wooden rivet on the front, right below the tip, so that when the Roman soldier speared his enemy, the tip would now break off. I didn't know that was him. That was him. I thought that they had just been doing that. Nope, that was Marius. That's awesome. Before then, the tip would stay on it, and so the enemy could grab a Roman spear and throw it back at the Romans. Now, that was no longer possible. That's pretty awesome. I had no idea it was yeah. thanks to him. Well, that's pretty awesome that you knew that it happened. I had no idea that this existed until I researched this episode. What? No. You taught me that. No, I did not. Yes, you did. You told me that when they throw the spears at them, it would break off. Oh, well, if I did, I forgot, but I learned it no again. Way. We've talked about that many <laughs> times, I feel like. Um, so in 103, Mateo, the barbarians had gone to Spain, and Marius was elected consul. Marius is in Gaul, waiting for the barbarians to come. So because he's he has this, for the third time? Yeah, he has this shiny new weapon, and the Chimbrians didn't show up to play. In 102, he was elected consul again, and he's still waiting. He's 55 years old now, Matteo. And most professional army. And finally, the Chimbrians oblige. They return to Gaul with their friends, the Teutons and the Ambrones. There were 200,000 barbarians, Matteo. 100,000 Chimbrians, 100,000 between That's the Teutons freaky. and the Ambrones. And you hear the war cries, how, how loud that must have been? And they had Holy one crap. very clear objective. They wanted to invade Italy. And they were very well coordinated. The Chimbrians moved through Gaul. The Teutons and the Ambrose, Ambrones went over the Alps through the Brenner Pass, like Hannibal. And in a pincer movement, they were going to sweep into Italy and take out the Romans. Marius met the Chimbrians, Matteo near Aquae Sexte. That's the modern French town I was trying to remember the name. Aison Provence was Aquae Sexte. That's where Marius had his headquarters. The battle began almost accidentally when they stumbled across each other. Marius maintained discipline against a much larger army. Not only did he maintain discipline, Matteo, but Marius had concealed 3,000 men on high ground. The Chimbrian rushed past this little hidden cohort. And as Marius engaged the Chimbians from the front, his hidden 3,000 men swooped in from behind and attacked the Chimbrian rearguard. How big was Marius's army? Marius's army was 30,000 men. Against 100,000. Against 100,000. That's ridiculous. And the Romans wiped out the Chimbrians. That was the end of the Chimbrian threat. 
never again. They 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 never. I mean, they you have to think a hundred thousand. That must have been more than just the Tribune uh, tribe. That must have been multiple, multiple tribes. Like, 100,000 is a lot. According to Plutarch, it was just the Chimbrians. That's a lot, then. That must have been, like, their entire people. Like, it it must have been their entire people their on the move. Wow. So that was the end of the Chimbrian threat. But as you and I know, this is not the end of the German threat. And it instilled a fear of northern tribes and the Romans that they never really lost. And for good reason. It's as if they could see the future. Because this is the first of many tribes, right, that will sweep down from the north and wreak havoc on the Roman frontiers. Right. The Goths and the Vandals and, and more. The Lombards. And, yeah. The Lombards, yes. But that's coming in future centuries. In the meantime, Matteo, we still have the Teutons and the Ambrones. They made it over the Alps. And the other consul, Catalis, couldn't stop them. They poured into Italy. So this is 100,000 martial mm, warriors looking to cause serious damage in Rome. So, what do you think the Senate does? They all abandon the city? No, they re-elect Marius as council now for the fifth time. Four times in a row, Matteo. Remember, we talked about this in one of our early episodes. There was a law on the books that said you couldn't be a magistrate in back-to-back terms. You needed to take a break. And I think it was actually, on paper, it was something like 10 years. You couldn't be consul within 10 years of of a prior uh, uh, time of service. He had now been elected four four consecutive years in a row, his fifth time overall. That's crazy. And he moved into Italy, Matteo, to engage the Teutons and the Ambrones and met them at the Battle of Vercelli, which is somewhere near modern Ferrara. Sulla, his extremely talented master of the cavalry, pinned down the enemy, and Marius swooped in with the main body of the army and destroyed them. 120,000 dead barbarians lay on the field. Jesus. 120,000. 120,000. And by the way, Catalus also joined in that battle. That's a whole city. So Marius had 30,000 men, Catalus had 20,000 men, 50,000 versus 120, and they, the, the barbarians could simply not, they had no response for the exceptionally high training of Marius's army. Goes to show quality over quantity. It certainly does. So Marius and Catullus Matteo, they returned to Rome, and they got a joint triumph and 15 days of celebrations. Marius was hailed as the third founder of Rome, according to Plutarch. Wow. That's high praise. I didn't know Marius was... I always knew that he was a very important and significant figure in Hmm. Republic history, but I didn't know he was praised like that. I mean, five-time consul... uh, Hailed as the third founder of Rome. Huge. I mean, these two massive victories. Like, massive victories. There's not many, many, forget Roman generals, generals in history that win two battles when they're outnumbered by over 60K. He, he was up there with the greats at this point. And he took advantage of the moment, Matteo. He pushed for and got another consulship in the year 100. This is his sixth consulship now. And according to Plutarch, he wanted to be consul Matteo so that he could take care of his men. He wanted the power to make certain that this army that he had created and that had served him so faithfully was properly taken care of. He was 58 years old, and he was at the absolute peak of his popularity and his power. And Matteo, Hmm. if we were to end the episode right now, 
how are you feeling this guy would rank? He's one of the most successful Romans that we've seen so far. Yes. I mean, he... I don't know. If, if he were to end right now, I think that he would definitely be a hero. Of course. Yes. He, he stopped like a, a 250,000-man yes. invasion of Italy. Yes. That's crazy. But, Matteo. Yeah, but we all know Matteo. Marius does not die here. <laughs> no. Oh, Marius, if only you had called it quits. If only you had the good grace to die young. But he did not. He did not. He was a man on a mission, though, Matteo. This is the year 100, and there was a tribune of the plebs who was a lot like our old friend Gracchus. Only this guy's name was Lucius Apulius Saturninus, and he was an ally of Marius. And remember, Marius now is very focused on making certain his men are taken care of and that he can preserve the loyalty of the men that had served him so well. Right. And he worked with this guy, Saturninus, who had some radical Gracchian-type ideas. He revived the old grain distributions. That's something that Gracchus had implemented and then that the Senate had stopped, so people were, people were getting free bread. Right. And that's something that would stay in the empire for... It would stay in the empire until Heraclius, actually, in uh, 700 years later. This guy, Saturninus, there was a fellow tribune that was trying to stop him from pushing through his new legislation, and he had that fellow tribune assassinated. He also pushed, and this was most important to Marius, a land for vets program. So he had, including the Italian non-Roman citizens that served in Marius's army, they also got land grants in North Africa, Sicily, and Macedonia. This is radical. It is really big. Right. A lot of change happening in Rome right now. A ton of change happening. And you remember Metellus, Marius' old patron? Yep. Well, this ally, Saturninus, this ally of Marius, got Metellus banished from Rome. Wow. How? Big move. Big move. How did he do that? People power. They strong-armed the Senate, and Marius was completely complicit in this. He was all for it. But then, as so often happens, Mateo, when people tap into the power of the people, it started to get out of hand. Saturninus incited his followers to violence in the forum. They started threatening senators who didn't support his plan, saying, I will have you killed, basically. Um, And he had street thugs just messing people up on the road in the forum when they didn't agree with him. So the Senate said, enough is enough. And similar to what they did with Gracchus Matteo, they passed something called a Senatus Consultum Ultimum, which is which sounds really cool, doesn't it? Yeah, it does sound pretty awesome. It basically means any magistrate, so any consul or, or other high magistrate in the Roman Republic can use all necessary force to subdue Saturninus, huh. basically signing his death warrant. Right. And so Marius is in an awkward spot. Saturninus was his buddy. Saturninus had done things that absolutely benefited Marius. But Marius, you know, he always had this insecurity. He was a novus homo, right? And he was also the consul. And he wanted to be loved by the Senate blue bloods. And so he turned against his buddy. And he did something else, Matteo. He raised troops. And he brought those troops into Rome ominous precedent 
So they captured Saturninus and they put him in prison and Saturninus wound up being lynched to death in prison because uh, some of the people that he had offended wound up getting the keys to the door and uh, got in and killed Saturninus. So at this point, Marius was very unpopular with the Senate because he had been pro-Saturninus. He was very unpopular with the people because he let Saturninus get killed while in custody. And Marius Matteo did the only rational thing that Marius could have done. He left. Hmm. He left Rome. He went into self-imposed exile in Galatia, which is... It's not Galatia? Maybe, maybe it should be pronounced... I've always said Galatia. Let's say Galatia. All right. So he went to self-imposed exile in Galatia, which is in modern Turkey, somewhere near Ankara. And Mateo, he would stay in exile for nearly 10 years. I didn't know this. But his story is not over. This I oh, but Oh, but wait, there is more. Have you ever heard of the social war? Who hasn't? I don't know. I don't know. So around this period of time, Mateo, we've talked about this on a number of occasions now. You had these Italians that were serving in Rome's wars, 60% of the Roman army was made up of Italian allies, not Roman citizens, and they were sick and tired of it. They wanted to be full-blown citizens. They had fought for Rome, but they weren't getting their fair share of the spoils. They couldn't vote, uh, although they did pay lower taxes, and they wanted more. They wanted full rights. And so in 91 BC, a guy named Marcus Livius Drusus comes along and proposed, he was a senator, proposed full citizenship for Italians. And the Senate said, what an interesting idea, Marcus Livius Drusus. And you know what they did? Nope. They had him assassinated. Oh. (laughs) They didn't love the idea. Let's just put it that way. But the problem is that the Italians had pinned all their hopes on Marcus Livius Drusus. They really thought that finally Rome was going to step up and do the right thing. And now they realized that there was no hope. There was no legal means for seeing their grievances resolved. Their dreams were crushed, and they launched a war against Rome. But they weren't looking for citizenship anymore, Matteo. That, that ship had sailed. They now for freedom. they wanted 100% independence. Give it back to us. We've freedom. been under Roman rule for 200 years. Freedom. <laughs> yeah, it's a great song. It's a George Michael tune. That's a good song. And they founded a new capital. Oh, you're going to like this, Matteo. I know you did not know this. They founded their own capital just east of Rome, Matteo in the hills. It was called Corfinium. And they renamed their new capital Italia. Mm, the name of the peninsula. Is that not cool? These guys are some geniuses. They are smart. And guess what else? This place, Matteo, Italia, in the town called Corfinium. Today, that town is called Corfinio. And guess what? What? It is seven kilometers away from a little town called Popoli in Abruzzo. Does Popoli ring a bell? I I only hear you bring it up like once a week. Okay. So, (laughs) anyways, so that's where... One branch of your Italian family comes from Popoli, seven kilometers away from the capital of the rebellious Italians. They minted coins and everything, Matteo, with the name Italia on it. 
but they didn't write it in Latin. They wrote it in the ancient Oscan language, which was a language that predated Latin, had been on the peninsula for many, many, many centuries. They started their own senate, Mateo. I mean, they were taking this seriously. So I don't understand. How did they have this, mu- this much time to set up their own government? Uh, I don't know, I, because I think the Roman Senate didn't take it very seriously. They're like, was, ah, was whatever. Italy a big town? Uh, I don't think it was a very big town, but their plan was to turn this into a new center of power. And I was thinking about this. We keep touching on this Star Wars theme. Were these guys, like, the rebellion? Had Rome become the empire? These were the rebels? Like, are these the good guys now? I'm not sure, you know. It's hard to say. They're technically still the Republic. Hmm. So the new government of Italia put their army into the field, and these armies were no joke because these were veterans from all of the wars fighting for Rome. And the Romans just didn't see it coming. They were caught by surprise. The Italians started making gains in the social war, Matteo. They couldn't score a knockout blow, though. And Rome at this point, Matteo, had brought Marius back on the scene. Marius was back. He was back from exile, but he wasn't one of the big commanders. There was no single general in charge. Marius was one of several commanders because, Matteo, he's 67 years old now. And that's prehistoric for this. Yeah. For a very brief period of time, he was put in charge of the forces in the north fighting the Italians. He had some wins, but then he started playing things super cautious, like Fabius. Cunctator. He started pulling a Cunctator. So much so that Plutarch said the following. One of the, the main enemy commander in this area in the north where uh, Marius was in charge was a guy named Papadius Silo, which is a freaking tremendous name. And he sent a challenge to Marius saying, so if you're such a great general, Marius, why not come down from your fortifications and fight? To this, Marius retorted, well, if you think you're any good a general, why don't you try to make me? Wow, it sounds like freaking <laughs> two little middle school girls. <laughs> right? So, why don't you make me? He, he had a, maybe that was sort of the tone I was putting it, but that was the actual quote from Plutarch. So something had happened to Marius, Matteo. He had become old. He had become cautious. Maybe he'd become super comfy because Marius was massively wealthy now. And perhaps the Senate realized that because they relieved him from command the following year. Oh, and that's he, disrespectful. He did little more in the social war. And halfway through the war, Matteo, one of the consuls, Lucius Julius Caesar, that's right, Lucius Julius Caesar, his daughter Julia would become the mother of Mark Antony. I mean, talk about the incestuous little patrician families of Rome. This Julius Caesar proposed a law in the Senate to give all Italians that had remained loyal to Rome during the Social War Roman citizenship, finally. And the war went on for a couple more years, but it it just gradually petered out because Rome finally did the right thing, not because they wanted to do right, they just wanted the problem to go away. And that was the end of the Social War, which was the most serious challenge to Rome in many, many years. And yet... This story is not over. Marius gets his final chapter. Because in the east, Matteo, there was a king of Pontus called King Mithridates VI. And he decided that it was time for Romans to evacuate the neighborhood. Mm, That's always everyone's great idea, right? Mm, Exactly. You know what? I have a good idea. Let's kick out the Romans. 
That shouldn't be too hard. But there's something else to this, Mateo. Something sinister at play. <laughs> Plutarch says that Marius was behind this and that when Marius was in exile near Ankara, he had been in contact with Mithridates and he was encouraging Mithridates to go to war against Rome. Why? Well, because Rome would have to turn to their hero, right? Oh. For help. They would be forced to go to Marius and say, Marius, we need you. We need you to have the supreme power. So we don't know for certain if this happened, but we do know for a fact is that Mithridates went on the attack to expand his lands and to expel Rome from the neighborhood. He took control of the entire Black Sea coast and then he crossed the Bosphorus and kept pushing. He invaded the Roman province of Asia, Matteo. So now he's going straight against Rome and he started executing all of the Italians in his lands. And Plutarch says that 80,000 Italians were butchered by Mithridates, which was a massive blow to Rome. But not just the murder of its citizens, because Asia was a very wealthy Roman territory and it was basically given all the profits to the Roman treasury. And so this was a bridge too far for Rome. They couldn't accept this. Mithridates didn't stop there though, Matteo. He crossed the Adriatic now and he occupied Athens and started expanding his control over Greece. Rome had to respond. They had to respond hard and fast, but first they needed to pick a general to lead the troops. And who else but uh, psych? This quote is too good. This is So Rome was auditioning generals, okay? And this is Plutarch's quote on what happened. Marius, however, showing a spirit of keen emulation that might have characterized a youth, shook off old age and infirmity and went down daily into the campus marshes where he exercised himself with the young men and showed that he was still agile in arms and capable of feats of horsemanship although his bulk was not well set up in his old age, but ran to corpulence and weight. I didn't even understand that last part. So it means that he had gotten old and fat, but he was down there in the campus marshes trying to like show off his biceps and his muscles, then he could still ride a horse so that the Senate would see, hey, this Marius guy, huh? Yeah. How about that guy? That's pretty funny. Yeah, it was kind of a little pathetic. And surprise, surprise, as you already guessed, in 88 BC, the Senate elected the patrician Lucius Cornelius Sulla as consul. This is the old number two to Marius, Sulla, 50 years old now. He was given the command to go east and fight Mithridates. But Marius was scheming, Matteo. He was not content to go quietly into the night. And so he had another of his allies, a tribune called Sulpicius, get Sulla dismissed as commander of the campaign against Mithridates. How about that? Are you still there? Mm -hmm. I don't know, he went quiet. Sulla refused to take this, lying down. He's like, there's no way. Instead, he fled Rome, Matteo. He fled to his army, which right. was waiting on the Adriatic. And he took those troops, Matteo, and he marched his troops on Rome. This had never, ever happened in the history of Rome. And extremely forbidden. It was a dark, dark precedent. Dark precedent. And unfortunately, as we know, not going to be the last time we see this happen.
At the time, however, it was the first time it had happened, and Marius did not expect this to happen. No one did. Not the Senate, not Marius, not anyone. And so Marius, knowing that Sulla was marching on Rome, gathered together a bunch of gladiators and some random thugs, tried to defend the city. Sulla arrived, entered the city, wiped out Marius's defenders, and Marius fled. Sulla annulled the Sulpicius's law, so he was back in charge formally. He put a price on Marius and Sulpicius's heads. Marius barely escaped Matteo with his life. He went on a harrowing journey through Italy, finally making it to Carthage, where he took refuge with his veterans. Sulpicius, however, was not so lucky. He was tracked down and he was killed. So Sulla has Rome under control again in 87 BC. He gathered his troops and he marched east to take on Mithridates, and we're going to cover that in the next episode. But while Sulla was gone, Matteo, there was a new consul elected, two new consuls elected, Cinna and Octavius. Octavius, pardon me. Cinna uh, was pro-Marius. Uh, Octavius was pro-Sulla. And fighting broke out between them very quickly. You just get this sense that the old social order way out the window way out no, the window clicks and factions yeah Cinna fled the city Matteo he raised 10 legions including our old friends the Samnites they're Remember? still around they're still around and they still hate Romans by the way and he returned to the city with his 10 legions Marius arrives at the same time he had raised an army in Etruria they show up to the gates of the city force the Senate to open the gates Marius and Cinna march in with the army and take the city. They not only did they take the city, but according to Plutarch, Marius went above and beyond. First, he cut off the grain supply to the city with his fleet. He plundered the merchants. He made himself master of the city supplies. Next, he sailed to the maritime colonies and took them and he seized Rome's main port of Ostia for himself plundering the property there and killing most of its inhabitants by throwing a bridge across the river completely to cut off the enemy uh, and wiped them out. If I'm not mistaken, this is the first time in history that an army has breached the walls of the city of Rome. This is, right? this is well, Sulla came Look, he in, I know, but he but didn't breach. Technically, I'm saying, technically yeah. he's still, first time an army successfully captured the city of Rome. Like Pat, the, the, Pat. This, this is the case. This is the case. Marius just lost it. But it gets worse, Matteo. Because then Marius and Cinna went about tracking down and purging not just all the friends of Sulla, but anybody that smelled like Sulla, anybody that may have crossed paths with Sulla. They killed, Matteo, six former consuls. Octavius, Lucius Julius Caesar, Lucius Licinius Crassus, and more. They put their heads on pikes in the forum. They killed thousands. Sulla's command in the east was revoked, and he was declared an enemy of the state. But he kept on fighting, and we'll talk more about that in the next episode. They murdered families, they seized their properties, and according to Plutarch, headless trunks were thrown into the, thrown into the streets and trampled underfoot. Everybody trembled and shuddered at the sight. People were most distressed, however, by the wanton license of these brigands, as they were called, who butchered fathers of families in their houses, outraged their children, violated their wives, 
and could not be checked in their career of rapine and murder. Many Romans, patricians, committed suicide rather than be killed by the troops of Cinna and Marius. Marius's mind was unhinged. He was plagued by jealousy of Sulla. He wanted control of the campaign in the east and he didn't get it. And he was also plagued by terrors, Matteo, because he knew that Sulla would return. He was a glory hound. And when he went to sleep at night, every night, according to Plutarch, he heard the following saying over and over again in his head, dreadful indeed is the lion's lair, even though it be empty. So Rome was the lion's lair, the lion was coming back, and indeed Sulla was coming back because the war was now over in the east. On January 1st of 86 BC, Matteo, elections were held, Marius and Cinna were elected consuls, Marius's seventh time. And to celebrate, he had a certain guy named Sextus Licinius thrown off the Tarpeian Rock. Remember the Tarpeian Rock? No. Uh, it was that big rock off the Capitoline Hill oh, where they yeah, would toss would, people off. When, yeah, and it's where those people so, were climbing up when they saw him. Yeah, so it was an evil portent, and within 17 days of his election to the seventh consulship, Marius was dead, Matteo, in the year 86 BC at 69 years old. And that is Marius's story. Sith Lord. Well, he kind of went Sith at the end. It was sad. He went Sith at the end. And this is such a complicated one to rank. And I've been looking forward to talking to you about this. How do we rank Matteo his military success? Ten? Well, okay, we got to stop inflating him, but still. No, actually, what am I talking about? This guy beat two armies of over 100,000 with, like, less than 50,000. That's pretty freaking successful. It is pretty freaking successful. Never lost a campaign. I mean, Scipio Africanus was a, was a 10. Uh, Corvus was a 9.5. Okay, but is, if we give Corvus a 9.5, then this guy's got to be a little higher. I mean, there was a, a, a threat of a 250,000-man northern barbarian invasion yeah. to, to Italy. That was donezo. Game over. They lost the biggest battle of Roman history. Like, how are they going to fight that? It was beat both those armies? Existential threat to Rome, and he successfully saw it off with a far inferior force. You know what? I agree with you. I agree. And military success. He completely reworked the whole structure of, the mil- of, yes. of Rome's militaries, which most Western countries adopted. And we see most... Um, well, for most of history, people adopted the whole cohort um, organization um, structure. I mean, this guy was pretty freaking influential on militaries in history. So this guy's got to have, like, what, like a 10? I'm so saying. he's a 10. I agree. Yeah, I'm convinced. You convinced me. He's a 10. And, but what about his political success? Now, this guy was, like, okay, maybe the last consulship was kind of forced by him, but he was freely elected consul six times. He, he was. He was. So that which is huge, which indicates his massive political influence, but he went massively off the rails at the end and used his political power and his military power to 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 to, to murder and purge right. and pillage but and like how do we factor that in? It doesn't mean that's going to go in your hero score though. It doesn't mean he wasn't successful. Uh-huh. Just it just, like how you use your power morally, like that. That doesn't that that's bias, you know. So that's gonna go into our opinions if he's a hero or not. 
So I'm saying his political success, also pretty freaking incredible. I'd say like, oh, I'd be like a ten. You know, maybe this is gonna be the first guy with a very high score that doesn't get into the the hall. Yeah, but you you know what? You may well be right. And so it's hard not to it's hard to argue the fact that he was that he was not politically he was massively politically successful. He went from a little dude to a well-off family in Arpinum. Right, he was a novice being, homo. Yeah, he was a novice homo. Okay, so you're giving him a 10? Really? Yeah. Papi, six, seven-time console. Uh, I feel like somehow I need to get some qualitative ding in there because he was... He, he, he turned evil. Right, but thing is... That so you're saying you're Palpatine could, have, could score a 10 in political success? Yeah, I mean, was he successful politically? Yes, he was. doesn't matter if... Really yes, using success for bad things. It doesn't. It doesn't matter. He was very successful. It doesn't politically. take away from it. Damn it! All right, I'm going to give him a nine because I just can't. I just can't suck up a ten. What is their cool hero factor? Mm. I mean, he was cool, and I don't even know if he was cool. Actually, I don't think he was ever. I don't find him ever cool. Even when he was in Carthage, Sula won the battle. He took the credit. No, okay. What about when he? Beats both of those armies. Yes, agreed, 100%. He, he was remarkable. He was remarkable, but not cool like Scipio Africanus was cool in the field of battle. He was not, although he was very effective and trained his men and organized them and was, right. a, was a great leader of men. But, I, but cool, no. I think he was a very effective, effective militarily. I right. don't think he's cool. I think, actually, he was that guy that was always trying to be cool, had you know a chip what, yeah. on his shoulder. I think so. And too. was always feeling like... He was jealous. He was jealous. He was jealous of the world around him. Uh, so Like Anakin. I'm going to give him a three. I'm going to give him just a five. Like, he's just average in my book. Okay. Like, there's nothing... There's nothing... Eh. So, actually, I'll give him a four, because it is kind of uncool, the fact that he's always trying to impress... He's a like, wannabe. That yeah. He, yeah, he wanted to impress everybody. Yeah. He did his friend like that. Okay. His impact, Mateo, lasting impact on the world. I mean, he sent to play like the most, the first most significant event of the downfall of the Republic. So yes, yes, he did. He's massively impactful in the world. Yeah, absolutely. It, so the first on the, act is right here. So, so impact in the world militarily. We said the reforms of the Roman army were exceptionally important and would be copied by armies into the modern yeah, period. Yeah, well, so Napoleon that's a big and everybody. But he drove a stake through the heart in many ways of the the last little bits of the, the heart of, yeah. of the Republic. And he sent to play the final ballad of yeah. the Republic. Yeah, ballad. Okay, anyways. No, no, but, but, but uh, no, no, you're no, absolutely I just, right. I wish I'd, god damn it, ballad. That's <laughs> <laughs> not a biggie. All right, so his impact was big but not good. And so, and, and so how do we rank this? He had a real I mean, lasting impact. Like I don't anywhere. He did. From, it's got to be higher than a nine. So I've, it's got to go nine or up. It has to be higher than a nine. Yeah, I'm afraid you're right. I'm. I'm feeling very awkward and uncomfortable about this, but you're giving him a nine, and I think it's hard not to say that he's a nine. So I agree, and that brings Marius Mateo to an eighty percent, uh, which is high. And now we need to ask the question: Does he belong in the Hall of Heroes? And I think we've already answered it to some extent. No. He does not. If he just quit while he was ahead, then yes. If, if he, had, he was a glory hound, he was yes. selfish, jealous, and ultimately he killed the Republic for his own uh, mas his little masculinity. That's basically it. That is, 
precisely what he did. He killed the Republic in order to inflict, to soothe his own wounded ego, which shouldn't have been wounded. He was massively successful, Maybe wealthy, at this loved. Point, yeah, he had a good case for being the most successful. You know, like and, even with people like Scipio, like seven, like six times consul, won two of the biggest, probably the biggest victories of the Republic at that point in time. Yeah, like. And you know what's remarkable? Plutarch says that at the end, when he was on his deathbed, he still he was saying things like, I'm dying too soon. I haven't had a chance to really do what I was set on this earth to do. Like, he was still feeling like, I don't know. But you got to feel bad for the guy. He was probably had some demons, you know? He definitely had demons. So you get the sense that this novus homo thing is something that he never really uncovered. Uh, and so... That, Mateo, is that for Marius. Intense, no? And, oh, yeah. And we're going to head into another very intense episode coming up next week when we cover Sula directly. And Sula's story is going to be as nuanced, complex, and I think leave us with many mixed emotions. Thank you to our listeners. This has been a long one. Thank you for being patient and listening and Thank you for the feedback you've been giving us. Please check out our website, www.lostromanheroes.com, to see the Hall of Heroes and to see the images associated with this episode's uh, hero candidate. Please continue to leave us reviews. I'm sorry we beg for this every week, but you have no idea how important those reviews are for us, especially on iTunes and on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please, 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 Take just a minute or two and write a few words of a review. It makes the world of difference to us. I would like to say welcome to South Africa. You've been on this list of uh, countries that are where we have listeners in the past, but in the last month, South Africa has joined the top five, which is so cool. Somebody in South Africa is binge listening to us, and we're <laughs> blown away. We're just so honored. It's amazing. South Africa, whoever you are, Please keep listening, share the podcast with your friends, and leave a review for us. And that is it. This has been such a long episode. I don't think we're going to read or review this episode. We'll come back to it next episode. Email us at info at lostromanheroes.com. Follow us on Instagram and on Twitter at lostromanheroes. And please join us next week when we cover Lucius Cornelius Sula. And thank you. Thank you. That's it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Over and out.